0: convincing story that maps onto reality and that's why the central narrative is falling apart right now in the United States people should not be walking around with must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is you are American while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job I tell you what we are in a truth emergency right now this is the end game. It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022, the 435th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. We are going to start out today in the world of censorship and technology, and we will start, as we often have, talking about Spotify and Joe Rogan. Because it's starting to seem like maybe he has realized accepting censorship was not a very good idea for his brand or his happiness for that matter.
1: i we going to pour over every single little thing. They I will say, because and, ah, there's more know. people
0: pouring over it, but it's the same thing. I do it
1: the same way. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's but just a conversation.
0: Uh, it's true. And and, you know, she's she's asking me about like, well, what time are you supposed to be there? I'm like, I don't know. He'll tell me. And she's like, "This is like the biggest f- podcast in the world." I go, "I know, but,
1: but it's my buddy. We're the same. <laughs> it's yeah. my buddy." That's if that. I become something different because it, it grew bigger, I'll quit. If I if it gets to a point where I can't do it anymore, where I have to do it in some sort of weird way, mm. where I I you know I walk on eggshells, yeah. and mind my p's and q's. Of oh, that.
0: So that's Joe Rogan talking to Josh Barnett from. The world of mixed martial arts, he is a fighter. And all the headlines this morning were about how Rogan is prepared to leave his $200 million contract, which is more like $300 million, if he's not allowed to do the show the way he wants to anymore. He doesn't want to be out there walking on eggshells. He's talking about how harassed he gets every time he puts up a controversial episode. People are coming for him. And that's obvious. But part of that is that he's already bent the knee to these people. He's already apologized for certain episodes for saying certain things. Spotify has stripped 113 episodes of his show from the online catalog. And Joe Rogan's contract made him exclusive to Spotify. So that's the only place that you can get his show. And that huge money that he got a couple months after COVID began... Is that all a coincidence? Spotify basically said to Joe Rogan, hey, we're going to give you the most money ever for you to do your show. It's only going to be here and we're going to be able to control it. And Rogan said yes. Now, I don't know what's in that contract, obviously. You would think he would have thought about his own free speech before signing it, but maybe not. 113 episodes are down. That's like 350 hours worth of, of Rogan's content that just can't be accessed anymore by anyone unless you like really search it out. And that's the problem with committing to one outlet. If that one outlet decides you're not allowed to say things, what do you do? A lot of people at Fox News are in the same position. Tucker Carlson even admits at this point that they haven't spent a lot of time talking about election fraud. Well, why not? We know why not. It's because when you get paid, A whole lot of money, your incentives change. Are you really willing to give up all of that just to continue to speak the truth? Or can you just tone it back a little bit and still have conversations that you enjoy and your audience enjoys and you can avoid getting in trouble? That's what's happening. The crazy thing is that Joe Rogan is going to be ultra wealthy no matter what. He could leave that Spotify deal and get just as much money doing all of this on his own. And the truth is, if he can't get just as much money doing it on his own, then what we really have is an overinflated Spotify deal that was created specifically to control Joe Rogan. Massive corporations don't pay extra. They don't pay more than they have to for things. So if they extend a contract to someone like Joe Rogan or Barack and Michelle Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, or Netflix with Susan Rice, if they're extending those kinds of deals, then what they're paying for is not the ability to earn income based on the show being hosted on their platform. They're paying for something else. And it seems like what they're paying for with Joe Rogan is his silence. Rogan could go out on Rumble or even like Locals or Patreon, Or Substack or something. He could find a range of different platforms that could make him money and he could say whatever he wanted. His fans will follow him anywhere and they'll pay for his content and they'll support the companies he advertises. That's how powerful Joe Rogan is. He shouldn't be backing down to any of this stuff. So, what is the money for? Now, also in the world of tech censorship, The Republicans on the Judiciary Committee in the House have sent letters to Facebook and Twitter, and I want to share those with you. This is the one to Mark Zuckerberg. Shortly before the 2020 election, Facebook suppressed an explosive New York Post article detailing how Hunter Biden used the position and influence of his father, now President Biden, for personal gain with the apparent awareness of President Biden. We wrote to Facebook at the time with important questions about Facebook's knowing suppression of First Amendment protected activity. Facebook ignored our letter and in the months since has avoided any meaningful accountability for its actions. Now, with even the New York Times confirming the accuracy of the Post's reporting, we are investigating Facebook's actions to interfere in free and fair election related public discourse on its platform to the benefit of President Biden and the detriment of former President Trump. Although the Post article concerned a topic of importance to many voters in the run up to the election, Facebook still censored it. Soon after the Post published its article, Facebook's policy communications director, a former staffer for Democrat elected officials, announced that Facebook was reducing its distribution on our platform. That's the stories distribution. And they're talking about Andy Stone, who used to work for Kamala Harris. Facebook presumably did this because it saw, quote, signals that the post story was, quote, false. As far as we know, Facebook has never identified or explained these signals. Instead, Facebook announced that the article would be, quote, eligible to be fact checked by the company's third party fact checking partners, end quote. However, Facebook has never revealed the results of this fact check or even whether it occurred. The Post article was likely to have significant implications for the presidential election. It detailed how Hunter Biden leveraged his father's influence as then vice president for personal gain. When Hunter Biden served on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian company, a company executive asked him to use his influence to stop a domestic Ukrainian investigation into Burisma. Another time, the same executive thanked Hunter Biden for arranging a meeting with then vice president Biden. Eight months after that, Vice President Biden pressured the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor who was investigating Burisma, a firing about which Vice President Biden later bragged. The Post article challenged President Biden's claim that he had, quote, never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealings, end quote. Although the Post explained exactly how it obtained emails on which it reported and included pictures of certain emails, Facebook still suppressed the article. The mainstream media followed Facebook's lead, wrongly claiming the post story was disinfo and unverified. It appears Facebook knowingly and deliberately used its platform to control election related information accessible to the American people shortly before the 2020 election and that Facebook did so to the primary benefit of then Vice President Biden. And I think that should probably say former President Biden to get the timeline correct. Facebook's actions helped shield Vice President Biden from increased scrutiny about the impropriety detailed in the post article. In addition, Facebook's actions gave rise to other news outlets, tech platforms and even Biden himself dismissing the story as disinformation or untrue when, in fact, it had never been rebutted. This irresponsible conduct demands a thorough investigation so that we may understand how big tech wields its enormous power over the free flow of information to the detriment of free and fair elections. Big tech is out to get conservatives. Facebook's suppression of the Post article detailing Biden family wrongdoing only underscores that point. Given the importance of these issues, we request the following documents and information. All documents and communications between October 1st, 2020 and the present referring or related to Facebook's decision to reduce the dissemination of the New York Post article on its platform and what factors, including any signals, Facebook considered in this decision. And they're requesting the same for communications with Facebook and its third party fact checkers between Facebook and any individual related to the Biden campaign or the DNC about the New York Post article, anything between Facebook and the employees of other social media companies referring to this censorship and between Facebook and any media companies referring to this takedown of the New York Post article. And then this is an interesting one. All documents and communications between October 1st, 2020, and the present referring or relating to Facebook's decision to report or not report its actions to the Federal Election Commission as an in kind contribution to the Biden campaign. That one could get very interesting. They want to know which Facebook employees were involved in the decision to take the New York Post piece down. And finally, they're asking for an explanation on how Facebook's actions in reducing the dissemination of the New York Post article on its platform is not a publisher function for purposes of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And they sent a very similar letter to Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal. Now, you can expect all of this will be tied up with various legal maneuvers or just outright rejection of the requests for the next six months or so. But with a Republican Congress in power starting at the beginning of next year, we can hope that they actually put some weight behind this and get some results because Facebook and Twitter and for that matter, Google and a bunch of other tech and tech related companies also coordinated to influence Not only the American election, but American politics in general. And they do this right out in the open. All of the tech companies have former employees working directly in the fake administration. And some more about that came out this week as it was reported that former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has been personally funding the salaries of employees in the fake administration. Now, this is a complete... Cover-up effort from Vox's Recode, which is like the blog of Vox-style tech bros. The real scandal behind billionaire Eric Schmidt's paying for Biden's science office. Former Google CEO Eric Schmidt has faced a backlash since Politico reported earlier this week that he indirectly funds and wields unusually heavy influence over an important White House office tasked with advising President Joe Biden's administration on technical and scientific issues. You'd think that that would be really important during a pandemic and during the most thorough and complete censorship and propaganda regime in history. The ethical concerns surrounding this news are glaring. A tech billionaire with an obvious personal interest in shaping government tech policy is giving money to an independent government agency devoted to tech and science, albeit through his private philanthropic foundation. Philanthropists are the worst people in the world. Yes, all of them. Am I sure it's all of them? No. But also, yeah. The real scandal, however, is that a government office needed philanthropic aid to fund its work in the first place, creating an ethical quandary over potential conflicts of interest. The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, the OSTP, is responsible for advising the president on a vital and wide breadth of public policy, whether it's a people's bill of rights for automated technologies or the gargantuan effort of preparing for future pandemics. It also has a meager $5 million annual budget, which means it has to get creative to do its work. The use of staff from other federal agencies and the armed services, universities, and philanthropically funded nonprofits dates back five presidential administrations. But President Biden was the first to elevate the office to a cabinet level, an OSTP spokesperson said in a statement to Recode. According to the office... Among the 127 people who currently work there, only 25 are OSTP employees. The remaining are a mix of temporary appointees from other federal agencies, as well as people from universities, science organizations, or fellowships that may be funded by philanthropy. Enter Schmidt Futures, Schmidt's private nonprofit that supports initiatives that use tech to address hard-to-solve scientific and societal problems. According to Politico, there was a direct coordination between OSTP and a Schmidt Futures employee named Tom Khalil to secure funding for the office staff. Khalil also served as an unpaid consultant to OSTP for four months while still working for Schmidt Futures, and he left the agency after ethics complaints in October 2021. I can't believe people were complaining. The Biden administration is the most Transparent fake administration of all time. They are also the most ethical fake administration of all time. The ties between Schmidt, his foundation, and OSTP go even deeper than that, with Politico reporting that, quote, more than a dozen officials in the then 140 person White House office have been associates of Schmidt, including some current and former Schmidt employees. More than a dozen. Out of 140 people are directly tied to Eric Schmidt. Both OSTP and Schmidt Futures maintain that their connection has been misconstrued as nefarious. They say this sort of partnership is par for the course. Don't you love that as an explanation? It's not nefarious because this is how things are done and everyone does it this way. That is how the deep state stays in place forever. There's not a justification for what they're doing. It's just how it's done. The corruption doesn't matter. The nepotism doesn't matter. The obvious outside influence to benefit some of the most powerful people and corporations in the world doesn't matter because that's just how it's done. We're not doing anything unusual here, so we can't get in trouble. And we as citizens actually use these sorts of excuses to excuse a lot of the behavior and justify a lot of the behavior that we see from politicians. You know, the old cliches about how all politicians are dishonest. All politicians are corrupt. Well, yeah, that's because we keep allowing them to be and because we don't have free and fair elections and we don't care about either. And I'm talking about society at large, obviously not us. We care about both. It's basically the argument that if something isn't explicitly illegal, then it's also not a bad thing to do. Well, the law doesn't prevent it, so you're allowed to do it. And if you're allowed to do it, then there's no moral issue. But that's not what something being technically legal means. It means you can't maybe get arrested for it or punished for doing it, but it doesn't somehow make it moral to do it. These schemes actually should be illegal, and we should work to prevent them in the future. But there's nothing about their technical legality that makes them okay. This is only corruption and influence, and it's right out there in the light of day. Everyone can see it, and these people don't care at all. In a statement, Schmidt Futures highlighted how the OSTP has been chronically underfunded. That's a quote and said that it was proud to be among the leading organizations providing funding to OSTP. In other words, Schmidt Futures makes clear that it isn't the only private organization to charitably provide much-needed monetary support to government agencies. Now, this is where we really see the cover-up that Vox's Recode is attempting to pull. Chronically underfunded. Chronically underfunded means that this organization doesn't have enough government money to do the things they're supposed to do. Now, what are they supposed to do and why can't they get more money from the government if this office is actually necessary for the good of the country? Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says we need an office of technological and scientific policy. And if they can't justify the work they do to the Congress in order to get appropriations, if they need to seek outside money, then that's a pretty good indication that they don't need to be part of our government at all. So, what we have is outside groups paying to essentially infiltrate the government and set policy on the behalf of the American people, even though that policy is antithetical to the needs and interests of the american people and vox's argument is that the reason they're forced to take money from eric schmidt is not so that they can do google's bidding it's because they need the money so bad to do their important work well what important work turns out it's eric schmidt's bidding The U.S. government and OSTP have pooled philanthropic funding to ensure proper staffing across agencies for 25 years, the statement continues. It's true that collaboration between governments and the philanthropic sector is not new. Over the last two decades, there's been an increased focus on public-private partnerships at the federal level, including using private resources to fund public and governmental capacity, said Benjamin Saskis senior research associate in the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute. That just sounds like something George Soros made up. Where this gets really tricky is when the funding involves regulatory agencies with oversight over areas that the funder has been interested in. That's why Schmidt's connections to OSTP have raised alarms. Now, before we go on, let's remember that public-private partnerships are essentially the same thing, like the mirror image, the other side of the coin, from Klaus Schwab's stakeholder capitalism. It is the government working hand-in-hand with, quote-unquote, private organizations to benefit the political agenda of the party forming the partnership and to increase profits for the private organization. And neither party is the least bit concerned about the good of the American people. Google is not then a private organization that needs to be regulated in some ways to, for instance, not form a monopoly and obviously to not work in direct opposition to the good of the American people. That's what government regulations are supposed to be for. They're supposed to be to protect the people. But instead, we have a scenario where Google is considered to be a stakeholder in the government's technology policies, and their needs, because they're so important, are placed above the needs of the American people. They are a critical stakeholder. So, what they want has to happen. And once they get what they want from the government, well, then they're happy to help the government out when it needs to do things like censor search results so that no one can actually see real news, completely take Russian outlets off of the Google search results. Well, you can't see Russian news anymore because the Russian news makes it look like all the media outlets in the West, all the big technology companies are all lying and trying to protect their own interests in Ukraine. And it can't be that. This has been a problem for philanthropy and democracy really from the beginning of the emergence of large-scale foundations in the early 20th century, Saskis continued. A number of them, most significantly the Rockefeller Foundation, appreciated that shaping public policy and helping to staff federal institutions and federal agencies was a way to leverage their resources most effectively. Shocker. Many government offices like OSTP also work with outside consultants from the private sector. Some are what's known as, quote, special government employees. (laughs) Special. They're so special. They can work for the government for up to 130 days over a 365-day period, are subject to different ethics rules, and can be compensated through outside funding. According to Walter Schaub, a senior ethics fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, roughly 40,000 SGEs, special government employees, are working for the government today. Most of them on federal advisory committees. Isn't that so great? All sorts of organizations pay 40,000 different people directly so they can be a part of our quasi government. They're not government employees, but they act like it for whose benefit are they working? Outsiders are not subject to government ethics rules or the government's transparency requirements, Schaub continued. They may put their own interests before the American people, and we have no way of knowing how that changes outcomes. It's one thing for the public and private sectors to coordinate on and contribute to a project. It's another when the government office accepts money from philanthropy that creates potential ethical conflicts. That signals a systematic underfunding of the public sector that all but guarantees some dependence on private interests and accepting such money creates a problematic trade-off. So you see that? The solution isn't to do away with these offices. It's to spend more American taxpayer money on those offices. And the assumption apparently from the woke millennial bloggers at Vox is that if we just gave them more money, maybe then they would work to our benefit, as their job entails. And here's a great one. Speculating on the true motive behind Schmidt's involvement in OSTP is almost beside the point. It seems inevitable that the money quietly flowing from him and his foundation to the office would apply pressure that favors Schmidt's personal and business interests. Nonetheless, it would still be real nice to know exactly what those interests were. It's a form of shaping public policy, said Saskis. You can do that through trying to promote certain laws, but you can also do that through staffing. And I don't think that's necessarily nefarious, but it is a certain type of influence. There's got to be, at bare minimum, a clear understanding of what money is entering the arena, from who and for what purpose, said Peter Goodman, a New York Times economics journalist and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. In a post-Citizens United world, combined with these innovative, I'm using that term in air quotes, approaches to philanthropy, they raise very troubling questions. And that's Goodman as well. What's at stake here is a much larger issue than Eric Schmidt and the OSTP. It's a question of what kind of presence private philanthropy should have in government. Government is expected to be fairly transparent and accountable to the public. While the philanthropy world is often opaque and subject to the whims of private, ultra-wealthy individuals like Schmidt, whose estimated net worth is $27 billion. Man, all that money, thank goodness he's a philanthropist. What would more reliably ensure government agencies charged with developing public policy can remain at a distance from the desires of the private sector? It could start with the government adequately funding them. It is Our fault as the taxpayers for not giving these agencies enough money. Truthfully, it's our fault as voters for not waking up to all of this much, much earlier. And I include myself in that, by the way. And realizing that our elections were fraudulent and realizing that all of this stuff should not be part of government at all. So let's move from tech corruption to good old fashioned political corruption adjacent to Hunter Biden. This is Patrick Howley writing for National File. And Patrick Howley is a great reporter. He's the first person that broke the Ashley Biden diary story a couple of years ago. Pelosi's son's associate convicted of fraud for scam that Pelosi's son promoted in Ukraine. Asis St. Clair. The close associate of Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul Pelosi Jr., has been convicted of wire fraud for his role in running a scam called the World Sports Alliance, which Paul Pelosi Jr. represented in the country of Ukraine. St. Clair now faces 20 years in prison when he goes up for sentencing in July, giving him plenty of time to flip on his associates. Damian Williams, a U.S. attorney, stated, according to the Department of Justice, as a jury has now found... Asa St. Clair used lies to defraud everyday people out of their hard-earned money by promising them guaranteed returns if they invested in IGO Bit, a digital currency he claimed the World Sports Alliance was developing. St. Clair touted the WSA as working closely with the UN to promote the values of sports and peace for a better world, while in reality promoting only the balance of his bank accounts. That's the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams. National File has been leading the way in reporting on the Pelosi family's Ukraine dealings. As National File reported in September, the criminal trial against Asa St. Clair, a friend and business associate of Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul Pelosi, Jr., formally moved into the discovery phase in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York on September 21st. The wire fraud case centers on St. Clair's dealings as head of the World Sports Alliance, which Paul Pelosi Jr. represented on a business trip to Ukraine. What will discovery turn up in this case? As Manhattan U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman previously announced, As alleged, Asa St. Clair used World Sports Alliance, a sham affiliate of the United Nations, as a vehicle to defraud lenders by offering them IGOBIT, a fake cryptocurrency. Records show that Paul Pelosi Jr. promoted IGO BIT. As we reported, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's son visited Ukraine in 2017 to meet with government officials in connection to a business initiative. Now National File has learned from overseas that Pelosi Jr. was in Ukraine representing his business efforts with Asa St. Clair, a close Pelosi friend and self-identified business associate who has been charged by the Department of Justice for wire fraud. Asa St. Clair is under house arrest, facing 20 years in prison. Video evidence proves that Pelosi Jr. was in Ukraine representing his corporate governance initiative and promoting his endorsement from the World Sports Alliance, which shared leadership staff with Pelosi Jr.'s company, CGI. The World Sports Alliance was Asa St. Clair's front group. That is accused of running a criminal cryptocurrency scam known as IGO bit, as well as international mining operations, including in the diamond rich war torn Central African Republic. Paul Pelosi Jr. traveled to Kiev, Ukraine in July 2017 in his capacity as executive director of the corporate governance initiative, a position that he accepted months earlier in February 2017. Pelosi Jr. said that he was in Ukraine to discuss a youth soccer partnership with the government, then led by former Ukraine President Petro Poroshenko. The American Mirror, which flagged Pelosi Jr.'s appearance in 2017, preserved a clip of Pelosi Jr. on the Ukrainian station following the video's removal from YouTube. Pelosi Jr. let slip that he was working in Ukraine with a group called the World Sports Alliance. Today we're here to talk about soccer, Paul Pelosi Jr. said in his television interview in Ukraine. We recently got an endorsement from the World Sports Alliance and we've spoken with the Ukraine government about collaboration for soccer for young people. Ukraine has a great history in soccer and we hope to share in that tradition going forward. The World Sports Alliance is a front group run by Paul Pelosi's good friend, Asa St. Clair, who served as president of the alliance. Records reveal that Pelosi Jr. and Asa St. Clair were working directly with one another during the period of St. Clair's alleged criminality. Asa St. Clair announced his endorsement of Paul Pelosi Jr.'s corporate governance initiative several months before Pelosi Jr.'s Ukraine trip. A press release dated December 27, 2016, announced St. Clair's endorsement of Pelosi Jr.'s company, stating, Paul Pelosi Jr. is a longtime associate, both business and personal. And when I saw him taking a stance on something my organization deems to be a cornerstone of our prosperity, I reached out to him to learn more. And the article goes on. I suggest you check it out if you're interested in learning more. But think about what the takeaways here are. Okay, so Pelosi Jr.'s associate Asa St. Clair has now been convicted. While Nancy Pelosi's son, as far as we know, is getting off scot-free, I don't think he will in the end, but for now, this is very similar to Hunter Biden's close associate and business partner, Devin Archer, getting convicted. And we'll see how all that goes. But we can see some of the minor pieces being taken off the board as the game works its way up to the higher level figures. Eventually, it will be Hunter Biden. Eventually, it will be Paul Pelosi Jr. And then eventually, it will be their parents who are the power behind these networks of corruption. Why in the world did Paul Pelosi Jr. and Asa St. Clair have a relationship with the United Nations in order to promote their fraudulent companies. That's kind of a big deal. And rather than thinking of this as an isolated incident, it's important to wonder how many other countries around the world, how many of the leaders of those countries have either themselves or their children involved through the U.N., In these types of corrupt organizations. And how is it that so many of them are involved in Ukraine? Switching subjects just slightly. There is a lot going on in the oil and gas industry and Russia's distribution of oil and gas to Europe since they decided to tie the ruble to gold and declare that unfriendly nations to Russia would be forced to pay for Russian oil and gas in rubles. All of that is meant to go into effect tomorrow. And Vladimir Putin put out a statement on this today.
1: Today, I signed a decree that establishes rules on selling Russian natural gas with the so-called unfriendly states. We suggest to the Contractors from such countries a transparent and easy to understand system to buy Russian natural gas. They have to open a Google account in Russian banks. These accounts will be used to pay for the gas that will be supplied starting from tomorrow, starting from April 1st of 2022. If such payments are not made, we will consider it as failing to perform the contract by the buyer with all the consequences followed by this no one is selling anything for free so we are not going to be involved in charity as well so the current contracts will be stopped and i would like to emphasize here in the circumstances when the financial systems of the western countries are used as weapon when the companies from these states refuse to implement contracts with russian banks enterprises and individuals when Assets and dollars and euros are frozen to use foreign currencies of these countries doesn't make sense. And what is happening, what has already happened, we are supplying gas to European consumers. They are receiving gas, they pay in euro, then they freeze this payment themselves themselves. So we have every reason to consider that the part of the gas that we supply to Europe, we basically supply it for free,
0: free of charge. So Putin has pinned the ruble to gold. 5,000 rubles equals one gram of gold. And he's told unfriendly nations that they need to purchase oil and gas in rubles, which basically means they need to take their currency and change it into gold or rubles. And this is a pretty savvy response to what the central banks and the allied countries, the countries that follow the global communist order, is a really good response to what they tried to do. They tried to attack the Russian currency and they tried to hurt the Russian oil and gas business. It seems like both have failed. Russia has formed and is forming new alliances. And this is a very bold move To thwart the countries of Europe. They tried to destroy the Russian economy. And Vladimir Putin has now said. Well choose one. You can either continue to destroy the Russian economy. And freeze. And bring your country just to a standstill. Or we will gladly sell you our oil and gas. Except. Our currency is going to be. Made much much stronger than it was. Before all of this started. And this seems like yet another scenario where we can see the West, the global communists, have absolutely no leverage in the situation with Russia. It seems like basically everything they have done to counter Russia has failed. So this is from Project Syndicate, the mouthpiece of global communism. The article is headlined, How to Eat Russia's Oil Lunch. This is how the very smart, very powerful global communists are ultimately going to win. A funny thing happened on the way to net zero. While environmental, social and governance standards were forcing oil companies to divest from fossil fuels, and while the United States was tightening its oil production policy and canceling the proposed Keystone XL pipeline on environmental grounds, Russia decided to invade Ukraine. The U.S. and Canada quickly declared an embargo on Russian oil, while the European Union, which is more dependent on Russian energy, struggled to devise a coherent policy. With energy prices skyrocketing, Western governments focused on increasing non-Russian supplies, including by recommissioning European coal plants and expanding U.S. oil and natural gas production. Cynics could argue that this is an Augustinian case of Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Clearly, a more radical rethink of energy geopolitics and decarbonization is necessary to confront the Russian threat. You got that? They got to reconsider climate change to figure out how to finally defeat Russia. Russia's new aggressiveness has been enabled by its oil boom. The country's oil production declined precipitously after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, reaching a nadir of 6.1 million barrels a day in 1998, 5 million fewer than a decade earlier. But output subsequently recovered completely, reaching a record 11.7 million barrels per day in 2019. Increased production and long periods of high prices gave President Vladimir Putin the resources to beef up Russia's army and throw his weight around. For example, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 after a decade of high oil prices and rising market share had filled the Kremlin's coffers. Do you ever get the impression that the entire climate change agenda, the entire Green agenda, the entire move away from fossil fuels is all so that they could dramatically weaken resource rich sovereign nations and not so that they could save the earth from the sun, as they say. Was it just never about the science? Maybe that has something to do with why people like Barack Obama continue to buy $10 million plus estates on the coastlines of America that the science tells us are going to disappear. In light of Putin's current war against Ukraine, Europe has announced plans to wean itself off Russian energy. But to a large extent, this is a fool's errand. As the world learned during the 1973 Arab oil embargo, it does not really matter who embargoes whom in an integrated global energy market. What counts is how much of the world's oil supply the aggressor can hold up. If this share is significant, energy will become more expensive for everyone. If Russia is set to remain aggressive and dangerous, the strategy should be to curtail its share of the global energy market as much as possible. But how can this be done? Which countries would benefit from such a strategy and hence help make it happen? And can the effort be compatible with decarbonization goals? And it's funny how they say that last part as if the entire world has agreed that decarbonization is everyone's goal. The world has not agreed with that. That's just the global communists. The answers to these questions may be somewhat surprising. To be sure, the EU and the G7 would obtain security benefits by helping to reduce Russia's share of the global energy market. They can do this by restricting Russia's access to international finance and oil production technology and by imposing a tax on Russian energy in order to limit the country's market access. And think about that in relation to what you just heard from Vladimir Putin. Do you think any of that is going to scare Vladimir Putin? He's already threatening to withhold Russian energy. Are we supposed to imagine that the solution to that is trying to punish Russia more? There isn't some simple energy alternative that they can just flip a switch on and have to supply all of Europe. Putin seems to have all the leverage in this situation, but OPEC also stands to gain from such a strategy. In December 2016, when oil prices were low, Russia entered into an alliance with OPEC to curtail production and prop up prices in a broader structure known as OPEC the deal worked to Russia's advantage. By 2019, OPEC had cut production by 2.3 million barrels per day, with Saudi Arabia reducing output by 573,000 barrels per day. But Russia increased production by 337,000 barrels per day for OPEC an alliance with Russia no longer makes sense. And there you have it. They're going to try to sever OPEC and Russia. Instead, OPEC has an incentive to weaken an important competitor that has taken market share from its members in the past 25 years. After all, most OPEC production is in countries with large reserves. If the world is to decarbonize, those reserves will remain underground after 2050. So producers are competing to monetize their reserves rather than leaving them stranded. The more that Russia is constrained, the more oil OPEC members will be able to sell. So we've got to sever OPEC from Russia, convince OPEC it's in their best interest to do it and still keep all of our climate change goals in place. The same logic holds for the U.S. The country is endowed with many well-known reserves of tight oil and gas, which have a break-even price of less than $60 per barrel. In addition, natural gas in the U.S. currently trades at about $5.50 per million British thermal units. A small fraction of prices in Europe, justifying major investments in liquefied natural gas trains to export output to Europe and elsewhere. And again, that's not just a switch you can flip on. From an environmental standpoint, U.S. oil and gas projects have the advantage of being quick to execute and wind up. A tight oil or gas well produces over 85% of its output in the first two years, whereas traditional oil fields can take up to a decade to develop and then run for decades, well into the period in which the world should be approaching net zero. (laughs) Amazing. It is amazing that these guys hold on to this stuff. So a burst of U.S. oil production aimed at reducing Russia's global market share need not be long lived. You got that? They're running out of other options. So now they are going to have to expand U.S. output. We had energy independence before the fake administration was falsely inaugurated. And they've continually made it clear that increasing American production is not one of the goals. It's not on the agenda. It's not even a choice. That's what they've been telling us to justify the high gas prices. And it also gives them a good excuse to deplete our strategic oil reserves, pretending that that's going to adjust the gas price enough to make a difference for Americans. It will not. Finally, the environmental movement can join the effort. Decarbonization requires cutting global oil production. Russian oil is heavier than most OPEC or U.S. oil meaning that it generates more carbon dioxide per unit of energy. Ooh, those dirty Russians with their dirty, dirty oil. It is also sour, meaning that it contains a lot of sulfur, a nasty contaminant. Reducing Russia's oil production may therefore be a good way to cut global emissions while keeping the world adequately supplied with energy until cleaner alternatives are developed. So basically, Putin says you can't have our oil unless it's on our terms. And the global communists say, oh, we don't want your oil anyway. It's like in every show in the 1980s, all the sitcoms where someone has a job and they get fired and they say, you can't fire me because I quit like, uh, sure you did. China is likely to oppose this strategy, but in 2019, it purchased only 2.4% of its natural gas 14 percent of its coal, 18.4 percent of its crude oil and 13.4 of its refined products from Russia. Oh, so just just a drop in the bucket. Pursuing an uncooperative agenda with its main energy suppliers is thus not a costless strategy for China. Moreover, solving the logistical problems constraining Russia energy exports to China will be time consuming and expensive, providing Russian producers with only partial respite. Yeah, good idea. You just need to convince Russia, OPEC and China that they need to get back on the global communist program immediately. The world will be better off if Russia is defanged. Assembling an international coalition to do this is made easier by the shared incentive to eat Russia's oil lunch. OPEC will need to reconsider its relationship to Russia and to oil consuming countries, which are needed to curtail Russian production. The G7 and the rest of the EU will need to engage in fresh thinking, too. But the incentives can be aligned and a safer world may be the result. And this is some serious Baghdad Bob Black Knight from Monty Python stuff. The global communists are being thwarted by Vladimir Putin in every way imaginable. And the solution is to just do more of the stuff they already wanted. And the outcome will be things will be better than we ever even imagined them. We're probably going to get to net zero even sooner. Now, I've been saying since the beginning of this that it seems pretty clear to me that Russia is striking directly at the heart of the global communist order. And that is actually the point of a lot of what's happening right now. And Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov seems to be directly in line with that idea. He made this statement today. You'll hear it in the background. I'm going to read the translation. A new reality is taking shape. The unipolar world is irretrievably receding into the past, and a multipolar world is being born. This is an objective process that cannot be stopped. There won't be one single ruler in this new reality. All key states, with a decisive influence on the world economy and politics, will have to come to terms. Being aware of their special status, they will ensure the observance of the fundamental principles of the UN Charter,
1: including the main one,
0: the sovereign equality of states. Nobody on earth will be considered a second-rate player. All nations are equal and sovereign. So he has essentially said what I have been describing for a pretty long time now. They are moving away from the global communist order and other countries will follow them. This is probably what Larry Fink was hinting at last week when he said it was the end of globalism. And I just want to repeat, he said a new reality is taking shape. The unipolar world is irretrievably receding into the past and a multipolar world is being born. This is an objective process that cannot be stopped. There won't be one single ruler in this new reality. Nobody on earth will be considered a second rate player. All nations are equal and sovereign. He is straight up declaring an end to the new world order, the one world order the global world order, the global communist order, they're all the same. He is asserting, much like Donald Trump did throughout his term. And this is the whole ball game for the global communists. The system they want doesn't work if major resource-rich countries are able to be self-sufficient and see their own way through this remaining sovereign nations rather than joining the global order. The only way... That the global communists could actually get their way if countries refuse is to go to war and to undermine their governments, which are the two tools they've used this entire time. But it seems like those tools aren't working anymore. I was reading a poll yesterday or maybe this morning that 83 percent of Russian citizens are backing Vladimir Putin in what he's doing right now. But that's not what the media is telling us. The media is telling us there's this uprising, very peaceful protests. They all want to take him out. The people want regime change. The West wants regime change. And it's just Vladimir Putin, the dictator, staying in. Well, that doesn't turn out to be true at all. And it doesn't seem like they have any ability to actually go to war with him. So what are the options? Doesn't seem like they have any left. This is the whole ball game. Their system is collapsing. And there's probably a lot of steps left to take place, potential dangers in all of those steps. But it seems like the big game has been decided and the globalists have lost. Now they are just essentially going back to marketing and cultural influence, hoping that somehow they can get the people on their side to be able to get everything done. I don't see it happening. Now, before I go, I want to talk about one little fun thing that came out in the Just the News interview the other night. John Solomon and my friend Amanda Head got to interview President Donald J. Trump. And Amanda asked him about the idea that people have tossed around about winning, taking back the Congress in the fall and then making Donald Trump the Speaker of the House so that they could then impeach Joe Biden and then Kamala Harris, and then Trump becomes president again. But here's what Trump said. ...to being nominated for Speaker of the House. And I, your reaction intrigued me because I couldn't tell one way or the other how you felt about that. Your reaction? No, I think that uh, it's not something I wanted. A lot of people bring it up. It's brought up all the time. Yeah. Um, no, it's not something I want to do. I want to look at what's happening, and then we're going to be doing something else. No, it's not something I would be interested Now, like I said, people have been talking about this for quite a while. I think the first person who suggested it was Rogan O'Handley. He goes by DC Drano on Instagram and Twitter. But I've always thought that that idea is not a great one. It's certainly not ideal in any way. It would be funny, perhaps, because communists' heads would explode. And that's always a good time. But there are a few problems. One is that Joe Biden shouldn't be impeached. Joe Biden isn't a legitimate president. Impeachment isn't the method to get rid of an illegitimate president. Joe Biden's illegitimacy should be handled on its own and he should be removed from office because he is only pretending to be president as the result of an obviously an overwhelmingly fraudulent election. So that's one. The other problem is that I think a lot of the country wouldn't see any of it as legitimate. It would seem like a ploy to put Trump back in power just because you were able to win one congressional election. Now, the upside of that is all these people would finally learn something about how the Constitution actually works, and it would be pretty hard for them to deny. But I think that that would ultimately be divisive. And for those reasons... I think that we need to fix 2020 before the 2022 election. And I almost think, in fact, I'm fairly certain that the ideal condition would be that that happens so that the country is more likely to accept it. The evidence of election fraud comes out during Joe Biden's fake presidency. Joe Biden is removed during his fake presidency as are the rest of the politicians around the country sitting in their offices illegitimately, which is nearly all of them. And then we just simply start fresh, either by placing Trump in office and the rest of the legitimately elected politicians around the country in office, which is, I think, a more unlikely outcome than having new elections, which is the other option. And probably a better option, because as long as those elections are free and fair and secure and it's one person, one vote verified from American citizens, then we actually know immediately that we have a legitimate government in place. And that's the best way to move forward. But I am happy to hear Trump reject this idea because I don't think it's a great one. And I never have. And I'm also kind of happy to hear him say. Yeah, we're going to do something else. And I look forward to seeing what that is. Before I go, just a reminder, if you want to make yourself more comfortable, your home more comfortable, go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code REASONABLE. You'll find all sorts of sales up to 60% off on bedding and slippers and towels. And you'll support this show You'll support a great American company and you'll support a great American Mike Lindell. And you'll also get some great stuff for your house. So promo code reasonable on mypillow.com. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game.